Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Where is the U.S. headed on political climate action? Green New Deal, Green Real Deal, or No Deal at All? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Florida is on the front lines of climate change in the lower 48. It's no surprise that Florida Republicans are on the vanguard of their party's calls for climate action. You can either believe the climate deniers or you can believe your lying eyes. And I'm from the pro-science wing of the Republican Party. That's Representative Matt Gates, whose district in the Florida panhandle was battered by Hurricane Michael in 2018. Gates is a vigorous supporter of President Trump, except when it comes to climate science. We've had a whole political discourse that has been based on phony science, largely on one side. I'll talk with Representative Gates later in the show about the Green Real Deal, his market-based alternative to the more regulatory approach of the Democrats' Green New Deal. First, I sit down with one of that plan's co-sponsors, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey. Markey has served for over 40 years in Congress and co-authored the last big legislative push for national climate policy a decade ago. I began by asking him what it's been like working on the Green New Deal with his insurgent co-sponsor, New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Well, it's an intergenerational compact. Uh, we know that the problem can't be solved unless we make this the generational challenge. And so we share a passion uh, to uh, create a movement which is going to change the relationship between the American people and the fossil fuel industry. Their power, their money, their ability to distort what happens in Washington just has to change. And so what uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and I agreed upon in introducing the Green New Deal was that we were going to try to lift the gaze of Americans to the constellation of possibilities in terms of deploying uh, clean energy technologies, creating millions of jobs, uh, and, uh, and finally, once and for all, wresting the power in Washington away from the fossil fuel industry and their control uh, over the climate agenda for the planet. Though there's some resistance coming from within your own party. Barney Frank, longtime progressive colleague of yours, said the Green New Deal was a loser in 2020 and said that society could only absorb so much change at once. What do you say to that, that this is too ambitious? Well, the polling 
says that um, climate, along with health care, is now at the top of the interests, especially of Democratic primary voters in our country. Uh, and I think that's going to make a big difference in the 2020 election cycle. I think that what we're going to find is that it's becoming a voting issue. The intensity level is very high. Uh, and that increasingly Republicans are going to understand that they are going to vote um, against the solar and wind and all electric vehicle revolution at their own political peril. So I think there's something very special that's happening. We can see it, especially in young people at the high school and college level. Mm. Uh, we can see it all around the world, actually. Millions of young people are now marching. It, it has an intensity that I think is going to make a big, big difference in the 2020 election cycle. So are you really, what's your plan for the Green New Deal? Is it to lay foundation to develop policy? So obviously nothing's going to happen with a climate denier in the White House. What, what's your plan for the next couple of years? What are you trying to do? Well, you are right. The denier-in-chief is sitting in the White House. He says that it's a Chinese hoax. So politically, we could hope that he could change his mind in the next year and a half, but it's more likely he's going to continue to try to use the remaining 50,000 coal miners in America as a, a proxy for how he fights for blue-collar workers in our country. And we care about those coal miners, and we want to ensure that there's a just transition for them. But at the same time, what we're going to do is make the case that we've already created 350,000 wind and solar jobs, that there are millions of clean energy jobs um, writ large already in our economy, and that there are millions more to be created, and that the economic argument is absolutely overwhelming, and the moral imperative uh, is equally uh uh, compelling. So I, I feel very confident that if we are more aggressive, if we lean into the issue, if we're willing to stand up and fight for it all across the country, on campuses, out at town meetings in the suburbs, there are people now rising up who weren't there in 2016 who are going to make the voting difference in the next, um, in the next election. And there's also uh, political influence, other corporations. When you did this 10 years ago, there was the U.S. Climate Action Partnership. There was basically a political center in this country that had uh, industrial corporations, Ford Motor Company, John Deere, even oil companies. I don't see that kind of political unification right now saying we need climate action like there was 10 years ago behind Waxman-Markey. I'm not sure you're right about that. I think that there's actually far many more corporations today that are willing to sign up for this agenda. Uh, I think that uh, we've already proved in the marketplace that wind and solar and all electric vehicles uh, are economically uh, competitive. We didn't have that actual proof mm -hmm. back in 2009 when Waxman Markey uh, passed through the House. Uh, and so... I think we actually have far more uh, working material politically to work with. We have to consolidate it. Um, associations like Ceres and others are organizing CEOs uh, to lobby Washington on the climate change uh, issue and in far greater numbers than existed in 2009. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident that before we hit uh, too deep into the presidential cycle of next year that we're going to see a pretty vocal uh, private sector uh, advocacy for this revolution uh, that 
ultimately will actually have a bigger voice because of the Green New Deal than they had in 2009. Certainly, we saw that after the, the, the announced pullout of the Paris climate deal. A lot of companies said, no, we want to stay in. Uh, there is a Republican-backed proposal, the Baker-Schultz plan, that has support from fossil fuel companies. And they want fossil fuel indemnification as part of a deal, like tobacco in the 60s, put the warning on the Surgeon General's warning on a pack of cigarettes. Are you willing to entertain uh, liability shield from lawsuits as if, for fossil fuel companies to be part of a deal? Well, are the companies willing to accept $100 a ton price for carbon? The answer is no, they won't. Okay. The, the, the price that those industries are willing to accept is a price that is far too low. And they also want, as part of the agreement, that we take off the books the fuel economy standards of the vehicles which we drive, the appliance efficiency standards, which we already have on the books for the air conditioning and heating that we have in this room that we're conducting this interview and every other building across the whole country. So a lot depends upon how aggressive the uh, proposal is from the fossil fuel industry. But just say, put me over in the skeptics camp that they're willing to actually support a price that we know would work in order to uh, create a change that would ultimately wind up as something that was destructive of their business model because it would lead to a radical reduction in oil and coal consumption in our country. Some people are concerned that the Green New Deal will uh, involve wealth and power redistribution, you know, because there's some aspects of this about certainly higher taxes, job guarantees. Uh, can climate be solved without, you know, really we have to transform the economy. You can't just take out brown and put in green. There's big changes. Does that necessarily involve wealth and power redistribution? It involves an, a technological revolution. It involves uh, changing technologies in our society. Uh, yes, when we move from the black rotary dial phone to having a computer in our pockets, it did cause some disruption. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think that people would want to go back to black rotary dial phones because it was going to cause disruption in the existing way in which we communicated. No one who drives an electric car says, I think I need to go back to gas. Well, I don't think anyone who has watched the solar revolution take place uh, over the last 10 years, and that's really all the, the entirety of the time in which it's existed, thinks that some huge income redistribution has occurred. I don't think that the huge uh, uh, installation of wind over the last um, 10 years has led to people saying, oh my goodness, a lot of income redistribution there. I don't think they say the same thing when they watch an all-electric vehicle driving down the street. I don't think when they purchase a car which gets 45 miles a gallon instead of 25 miles a gallon, thinks that some um, huge economic adjustment has taken place. So the people who complain about the economic redistribution want to call the plan socialistic. But those same people do not complain that the oil and gas and and coal and nuclear industries have been receiving subsidies from the federal and state taxpayers for a hundred years. Only when the new industries stand up and say, well, can, can we also qualify for those same tax breaks, uh, are they called socialistic?
So the hypocrisy, the, the just the absolute disgrace of the fossil fuel industry in using socialism as a as an argument against the Green New Deal just shows you how hypocritical they are because they've been the principal beneficiaries of the welfare state in the United States for 100 years. They're given taxpayer subsidy and protected um, by, uh, by regulations from having to deal with the externalities, the other harms which they're doing in our society. So, you know, there's an old saying that hypocrisy is the tribute which vice pays to virtue. So the the, uh, the, the, uh, the they tip their cap on their TV commercials on Sunday morning, on Meet the Press, on Face the Nation, and they're working hard on finding new solutions to energy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that's their hypocrisy, because in Washington, they're working hard to make sure that any subsidy for any competitor is taken away. And what we're doing with the Green New Deal is we're putting together an army that will, won't just be a resolution, it's a revolution, which it's unleashed, and they're afraid that it's coming at them. I'm gonna fight them all. A seven-nation army couldn't hold me back. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the Green New Deal. Coming up, more with U.S. Senator Ed Markey, plus Florida Republican Matt Gates on his vision for climate action. We've got to eliminate a lot of the subsidies that we provide for the fossil fuel industry. Fossil fuels are not our future. They just aren't. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the Green New Deal with its sponsor in the United States Senate, Ed Markey. Even with the current pro-fossil fuel agenda in the White House, some Republicans in Congress are willing to embrace clean energy. I asked Senator Markey whether there was anyone on the other side of the aisle that perhaps even privately he thought he could do business with on climate. Some Republicans are bringing out old ideas for more incentives for nuclear power and carbon capture and sequestration. Mm -hmm. But we have yet to hear people say that they would support permanent tax breaks for wind and solar and for all electric vehicles and for battery and storage technology. So we haven't heard that yet. So only at that point, you know, is it uh, reasonable uh, to say that Republicans are moving uh, towards a position where we can put together a bipartisan bill that um, would, in fact, make a meaningful difference in terms of reducing greenhouse gases. While Republicans have clearly been the obstructionist party recently, there's also been times where Democrats have also obstructed progress on on climate. Uh, 1994, Robert Byrd, West Virginia, President Clinton wasn't able to keep his own party together for the BTU tax, which was the first carbon tax. Uh, also, I'd like to uh, share with you a, a video that you, you may have seen, uh, Senator Joe Manchin running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, let's listen to this and I'll get your response. I sued EPA, and I'll take dead aim at the cap-and-trade bill, because it's bad for West Virginia. So that's a Democratic senator shooting a, a bullet through your 1,400-page Waxman-Markey bill. Have you talked to him about the Green New Deal? Is he on board this time, or is he going to shoot a bullet through the Green New Deal? Well, I actually said to Joe, that was a pretty good ad uh, because it got his opposition to gun control and his opposition to the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill all in one 30-second commercial. So I complimented him 
on the brilliance of whoever did that ad for him. And, uh, and, and we are, we're friends. And increasingly, what I feel is about to unfold is a, a real conversation that begins with nuclear power. It includes carbon capture and sequestration for fossil fuel technologies going forward. Uh, but also um, a pathway uh, for us to uh, begin to uh, put together constructive policies. The one thing that's different between Joe and a lot of the Republicans is that Joe actually believes in climate science. He, he accepts the fact that it's a problem. And you really can't get to the point where you're talking about solutions unless you accept the fact that the U.N. said it's an existential threat. So, so Joe's my friend, and I'm very hopeful that over the next year and a half and beyond that we'll be able to work together uh, to uh, construct policies that can move forward. And by the way, we can't do it unless we work together. And the, the Green New Deal resolution mentions training and education and special focus on vulnerable and frontline communities. So clearly, clearly that says Appalachia, coal workers and those sorts of things. One thing that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and I agree upon is that we have to ensure that this is a just transition. We have to ensure that we are um, taking care of the coal miners, that we're putting programs in place for health care, for job training, uh, for income, uh, for uh, any fossil fuel um, worker who loses their job. Back in the Waxman-Markey bill, what we did was we built in three years full pay, three years full health care, and job training for any coal miner who lost their job. The coal industry killed that bill. We've gone from 80,000 coal miners to 50,000 coal miners since 2009. Not one of them got that three years of pay, three years of health care and the job training. So I think it's critical, and that's why I built it into the uh, uh, 2009 Waxman-Markey bill. My father was a local union president, so I care about these issues. Okay, And so it's, it's ultimately you know, something that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, but there's an inexorable inevitability to, to this phase out that is already well underway. It's gone from 80,000 to 50,000 in 10 years without Waxman Wacky becoming the law. So it's the direction. But at the same time, people on my side, we have a moral obligation to all those workers to make sure that they have a just transition. The approach of a lot of climate people has been to dispense science and reports and and lead with facts. And a couple decades of that, uh, I'm, I'm part of that, you know, one more book, one more podcast. Um, but some people are saying that that, you know, accumulation of facts isn't really in reason, isn't really moving the needle. So I'd like to hear you thought on, you know, kind of this, is this a very rational, incremental kind of thing or something that appeals to people on a different level? Because facts are so disputed these days in our democracy. Well, less so after the UN issued their report that mm -hmm. um, that climate change is an existential threat to the planet. Uh, that happened at the end of 2018. And then uh, accompanying that, the 13 American federal agencies issued their own report saying that we are faced with a, a nine degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature for the planet. Uh, and a potential 11-foot rise in um, sea level, worst-case scenario. I think 
those two reports have made a fundamental difference in the way in which many people view this issue. And I think having Donald Trump in the White House as well, naming a coal lobbyist to run the EPA, naming an oil lobbyist to run the Department of Interior, have helped now to clarify for a lot of people who might not have paid attention uh, that uh, that this is an important issue. And so I think it's it took a lot of reports. It took a lot of work over the years. But I think we've now hit the, the uh, tipping point in uh, the science and politics are now on our side. Are you sometimes envious of all the media attention that AOC gets around the new Green New Deal? Oh, the more attention, the better. This issue deserves the attention which it's receiving, and she has a genius for drawing attention to an issue which I've worked on for pretty much my entire political life, uh, and it's a jolt of energy uh, which is long overdue. Would you join her uh, in a debate, uh, Climate One debate, at the museum or somewhere in Washington, D.C., with a couple of Republican counterparts to debate the Green New Deal? Oh, we would welcome that, absolutely. Great. Well, Senator Markey, thank you for coming on Climate One. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. U.S. Senator Ed Markey, one of the co-sponsors of the Green New Deal. You're listening to Climate One. One Republican congressman that Ed Markey or AOC could find themselves collaborating with is Representative Matt Gates of Florida. Though Gates is generally an ardent supporter of President Trump, he diverges from the GOP orthodoxy when it comes to climate and extreme weather, which have battered his district in the Florida panhandle. Gates calls his proposal for climate action the Green Real Deal. What he says about fossil fuels may surprise you. Well, the Green Real Deal is a response to the challenges we face with climate that leans into innovation rather than regulation. I think there are a few platforms we can establish that function as a love letter to the American innovator. You know, first, I think there's a broad bipartisan agreement that we have to improve our electric grid. I think the American Society of Civil Engineers gave us a D on the quality of the grid today, and that doesn't even allow our existing portfolio of renewables to achieve its its full capability in the marketplace. And so major investment in the grid then is a platform that all innovators can use in the development of renewables. A second uh, platform, I think, are federal lands. Right now, the way that we use federal lands to test and develop different types of wind or solar or hydropower technology really constrain access to smaller startups. It's a largely a special interest driven process. So I think we could open that up as a great platform. Uh, I would also say that we've got to get a more inclusive technology doctrine in the United States of America. And that would really mean a lot for us in the nuclear energy space. You know, right now we've got light water reactors that are the only reactors being approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If we had more access to modular nuclear reactors, if we had a more technologically inclusive doctrine as it related to hydropower, giving the federal government the ability to preempt some anti-hydro local and state regulations that are occurring, I think that, uh, that that would be helpful. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, our trade and intellectual property policies. You look at solar, for example. American photovoltaic solar dominated the marketplace. It was our innovators who drove that industry. But because we didn't protect their intellectual property, China stole the tech, produced for 
a less expensive cost because they didn't have R&D upfront challenges. And then they replaced half of the global market with their products. And that put a lot of American innovators out of business. We see China taking that same path right now with electric vehicles. So if we had uh, a world that was more accepting and inviting to American products because American intellectual property was protected, that along with the other proposals I've outlined, I think would do a lot for the country and would actually be modeled. You know, my challenge with the Green New Deal is that with a regulatory approach, there is no evidence that developing countries are going to put off prosperity in their own country for a generation for an environmental concern. And so my concern is that carbon-based jobs won't be eliminated. They will simply be moved to other places, and we will be virtue signaling in the United States with a regulatory policy that will do very little to reduce global carbon emissions. You talk about, uh, you know, some innovation. A lot of, it seems like a lot of your policies are, are tax-based. There's tax incentives from homeowners or commercial buildings to do upgrades. Uh, is this a revenue-neutral proposal you have? How would you pay for it? Well, it's going to cost money. And I, I think that we've, we've got to eliminate a lot of the subsidies that we provide for the fossil fuel industry to pay for it. And there are a number of proposals uh, around Washington to reduce those subsidies. You know, the, one of the things I find most egregious is that after BP had negligence in the Gulf of Mexico that impacted my district and they had to pay money toward that negligence to correct for it, they then got to deduct that off their taxes. So, I mean, think <laughs> about that. Some poor schmuck in my district who's like saving up for his col for college for his child or grandchild, he doesn't get to deduct that's, that money from his taxes. But when BP has to shell out money for their own freaking negligence, they get a tax break for it. And if we eliminated just the, the myriad benefits that they get in the tax code, uh, I think we, we could pay for a lot of the upgrades and uh, a lot of the work that would occur. But look, not all of my plan costs money, right? Uh, the changes we have to make to our trade policy, to our intellectual property policies, those are not expensive, but they would do a whole lot to spur American innovation. You also propose a permanent ban on offshore oil drilling with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, one of the most liberal members of Congress. Uh, what's, the, what's behind that? Uh, fossil fuels are not our future. They just aren't. I mean, they're, they're our present and we'll have to have a transition. But uh, Debbie and I worked on legislation that specifically addressed the state of Florida. And off the coast of Florida, we have the, the most innovative work in the entire military going on with experimental missiles. Over the Gulf of Mexico in particular, this is the only place where we can launch missiles over water or over air and then land them on land. And so it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that you probably shouldn't shoot experimental missiles over an oil rig. And so that's why Debbie and I have teamed up to show that even from the far right and the far left, uh, everyone would seem to agree that the development of our military capability ought to be more important than the next quarterly profit report of an oil company. Some of the proposals for addressing climate change have a liability shield for oil companies like there was for tobacco and asbestos. What responsibility should oil companies have for the climate uh, problem that they've contributed to? I don't know. Uh, and I don't know that it's oil companies in a vacuum. I, mean, I think that we've had um, a whole political discourse that has been based on phony science, largely on one side. And I think that that uh, has been you know, more troubling maybe than just the advocacy or production from oil companies. So I wouldn't say that, that the answer here is a lawsuit. I think the answer here is an innovation.
Hurricane Michael was one of the strongest hurricanes ever to hit America, killed more than 45 people, caused an estimated $75 billion in damages, including $6 billion at Tyndall Air Force Base near your district. How did that impact the people you represent, and how did it impact your thinking about climate change? Well, people just, you know, 40 minutes from my house are living in tents because a massive Category 5 storm ripped through the panhandle of Florida. And you know, this is the new normal. We shouldn't act now like Category 5 hurricanes or these major devastating events are some aberrational event. We have now a, a problem in the world where the climate is rising, weather oscillations are becoming more extreme, and uh, that is a consequence of climate change and human activity contributes to it. And so, you know, look, I am come from a very Republican district. My uh, accepting of the science of climate change is not something that wins me a great deal of votes. It may lose me a few. But when you point to the obvious devastation that people are experiencing, when you look at rising sea levels and melting polar ice caps, you can either believe the climate deniers or you can believe your lion eyes. And I'm, I'm from the pro-science wing of the Republican Party. I'm not going to deny the obvious science of climate change, especially as we see it playing out to the detriment of the people we care about. Do you think climate is contributing to people leaving Central America because of uh, crop failure, that sort of thing, the people that are coming north? Is there a climate aspect there to the uh, the migration north? Well, there, there's plenty of stuff still growing in Central America. I was down in that part of the world not too long ago, and the agricultural activity is vibrant. Unfortunately, it's also increasingly illicit. Uh, the you know I, I, I'm more concerned about our asylum policies, and I, I think that's the major thing that informs on movements in South America. But undoubtedly, as we see deforestation continue in South America, you're going to see global climate impacts as a result of the um, illegal logging that's occurring, the terrible pollution uh, in Venezuela that's resulting in rivers and uh, estuaries and uh, degrading as habitat. And that impacts our carbon capture. Look, still the best carbon capture that occurs is a tree, you know, and mm -hmm. as we see a global deforestation, it accelerates the impacts of climate change. And in terms of the Trump administration, obviously, is, is uh, favors fossil fuels. The president pulled out of Paris. Um, what are the prospects of your deal moving forward with a president who seems to be you seem to be in a very different place than the president on this? Well, look, the president is more bullish on some forms of alternate energy than others. He's very complementary of the capabilities of solar. He is considerably less complementary as it relates to wind and some other things. And I was not a supporter of the Paris Climate Accord, not because I don't believe in climate change or in human contribution to climate change, but because I didn't believe that the Paris Climate Accord was a good deal, had sufficient clawbacks and, gay, and you know did anything other than sort of offer up American cash for the hopes and dreams of others. And so I'm not, uh, I, I don't view the president's approach on Paris as holistically his last word on climate. I think it was his last word on that deal. I think he even said if there could be better terms, he'd be willing to enter into global negotiations on climate. And so that's that's a, a positive uh, development that I would like to see. And, you know, if the president's views in mind don't exactly precisely align on this issue, then I hope to be a positive influence on him. Is there any chance for a deal before the 2020 election? I mean, I look at some of your things, you know, there's more hydro, there's there's interstate transmission, maybe uh, extending tax credits, perhaps infrastructure. Is there any deal that can be made before the election with the Green New Deal, which is, I understand is very different? Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's different in a lot of ways. And it's and it's we've got some 
some common viewpoints in some areas like trade, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, I've talked to some of the proponents of the Green New Deal, and I've asked, are there elements where we have broad bipartisan consensus like enhancing the grid, like protecting American intellectual property, like expanding access to federal lands, where there's no real opposition, but some people think that we should do more. And so there's sort of an incrementalism uh, philosophy that butts up against the philosophy of the Green New Deal, which is that it's sort of all or nothing toward these ends. And you know, having I'm an experienced legislator. I've been in elected public office since 2010, and that experience sort of informs on my view that if if there are things now that we can do today that do have broad consensus, let's start with those, and then let's leave the the more divisive issues uh, for for a later time. Uh, not that they're not they don't still need to be addressed, but here's what I see now: every day we lose more of the polar ice caps. Every day we see that we are in an exponential increase of uh, the risk of extinction for a, a large number of species on the planet Earth. And I just don't know that w- we treat that with the appropriate level of seriousness when both sides seem to say that it's their way or the highway, all or nothing. So I'm, I'm one that would like to really start with the ideas that most people would agree on. Well, Representative Matt Gates, thanks for coming on Climate One. I hope you'll visit us if you come to San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Thank you. We can work it out. We can work it out. Republican Representative Matt Gates of Florida on the Green Real Deal, a market-based alternative to the Green New Deal. This is Climate One. Coming up, we'll hear analysis of the Green Deals from a reporter covering Capitol Hill. For Gates to come out here and very specifically address the fossil fuel industry as an area that he does not think needs to be the future of the country, it's in complete contrast to what Trump has said himself. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the art of the Green Deal, Democratic and Republican proposals for addressing climate change. Miranda Green is an energy and environment reporter covering Congress for The Hill. I asked her what she thinks about the aspirations of the Green New Deal and the Green Real Deal. I think, if anything, it shows that the issue of climate change has really uh, put itself at the center of politics right now and and at center of the political debate. Uh, The fact that climate change has become such an issue, not only with the, the left, with the Democrats, especially when they took back the House earlier this year, but the fact that now Republicans are feeling like they need to address it in their way. Uh, and the fact that we're seeing Matt Gates, who is a Republican, a strong Trump supporter, coming out and talking about how he also feels like there's a need to address the elephant in the room, which is climate change. He's coming from a state that is looking to really feel the impacts of climate change, which is Florida. And he feels the need to come out as a Republican and address it granted in his own way. Yeah, it was quite striking for him to say, I, you cover this more closely than I do, but for he was quite direct in saying fossil fuels are not our future. And he also went after, you know, touched uh, on the question of uh, oil company liability for things. Obviously, he represents a district on the Gulf Coast that was impacted by the BP oil spill. But that's one of the central points of tension is what is on some of these bills and proposals is what is the oil company liability, which is going right to a place not many Republicans go given their campaign contributions, et cetera. What do you think of Gates going there? Yeah, you have to really consider that this is kind of some 
uh, very, there's a lot of tension in this territory that Gates is pointing to, right? Um, obviously, this is important for him to address these issues as a representative of Florida. These are very important issues to that state. But also, he's talking about these issues. He's kind of casting aside the fossil fuel industry when his president, a man that he very much supports, is also at the same time hailing the fossil fuel industry, right? So (laughs) we just saw earlier that President Trump at his environmental leadership speech at the White House, um, he talked at length about the importance of job creation that has come out of the fossil fuel industry, the the fact that the United States has become the number one uh, producer of oil and gas. And these are not things that he seems to think need to be thwarted or stopped or slowed down in the age of climate change. So for Gates to come out here and very specifically address the fossil fuel industry as an area that he does not think needs to be the future of the country, it's in complete contrast to what Trump has said himself. How many other Republicans do that? I've noted that a lot of Republicans out of office, I've interviewed Carlos Cabello recently, Ryan Costello. We've seen elders, Bill Frist, of course, Jim Baker, George Schultz. You know, many Republicans out of office go there, but very few in office go there. Who else is doing that other than Matt Gates? You know, that's a very small majority. You know, Lamar Alexander came out on the floor and talked about how he wants to see innovation and jobs and more uh, money being thrown at this issue. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen, uh, you know, a couple other members leave and kind of come back and say, OK, I support climate change. Um, we saw Carlos Cobello, who lost um, his race in Florida, you know, come out kind of as a Hail Mary before he lost that race, saying he was very much believed in climate change and thought that it needed to be addressed. And since then has really talked about um, different issues and ways to address that. Ways that Republicans in Congress have been able to touch on this, especially Republicans who have districts that will be seeing the effects of climate change. Um, They are kind of going on the in-between route here. So you'll often hear them say things like, we believe in grid resiliency. We believe in spending more money on making sure that weather patterns are not going to decimate our electric grids. We believe on spending more money on carbon capture. Um, That is a topic that we've actually seen a lot of bipartisanship on, a lot of bills that have been introduced. They haven't gone very far so far, but we've seen a handful of bills come out where both Republicans and Democrats on the moderate lane say that they are interested in seeing this new technology. So carbon capture is this idea of whether you're taking it directly from the air or you're kind of putting a cap on a um, a fossil fuel emitting uh, plants like a coal-fired power plant and filtering through the gases and basically capturing that carbon so that you're making sure it's not going into the air. This is an area that Republicans have been able to kind of come to the middle on because it doesn't put a firm stop on the fossil fuel industry. It still allows them to continue it at a, at a price. Right. It's, it, it supports their business model and offers a technological fix. Would um, I might also add uh, wind and solar. You know, uh, Charles Grassley, a big supporter of wind, uh, is, you know, there's now some offshore wind coming online in the United States. It's more advanced in Europe. Is that an area where they can agree on wind and solar kind of it's uh, as job creators and energy creators? I think it really comes down to what the districts are that these members are representing, right? So Grassley mm. comes from a district where there is a lot of wind. There's already a lot of infrastructure for this. So, of course, he's very much a proponent of this. He's also a proponent of ethanol use, which 
back in the day, people used to consider kind of a transition fuel, right? It was better than gas, so let's burn ethanol. Nowadays, environmentalists are saying, you know, ethanol still emits bad particles into the air. It is really, you know, it still has to be blended with gas and that they are really just pushing for a clean transition to electric vehicles. Grassley still supports the idea of ethanol. Uh, I, you know, you also have to consider a lot of these members of Congress, when they're bringing these ideas forward, are also thinking, what is the possibility, not just of me passing this through the House or through the Senate, but getting it to the president's desk and having him sign it? So in the instance with winds, President Trump has tweeted that he believes <laughs> that windmills cause cancer, right? He has been very, very strong in his opinions that windmills are kind of not a great route to go. Many people say this goes back to the fact that he was very anti the idea that he had windmills placed next to one of his golf courses in Scotland, uh, was really opposed to that and has still taken kind of umbrage with that to this day. So I think a lot of members are wary of pushing forward ideas that he, at the end of the day, will see in front of his desk and say, no, I'm not going to support this. Well, what would he sign? Is there any sense of what, because he pivots on lots of issues. Clearly, he's doubling down on fossil fuels. I think the wind opposition is very personal. What would he sign? It's a good question. I think it's, it, you know, it's it's like asking anybody, you know, what does Trump think about something? And their answer <laughs> is wait till he tweets it. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, based on the speech that he gave at the White House, you know, he did indicate that he's in support of solar. Um, he did indicate that he's in support of job creation. So I think that anything that could kind of point that the United States will be coming at the forefront of some sort of industry he would consider. Uh, there have been members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who are very much in the idea of, you know, the United States needs to be more of a competitor when it comes to solar panels and solar technology. China is kind of the leader of that right now. And we all know that Trump does not like the idea that China, you know, has, has been kind of taking over a lot of what he thinks are bad deals with the United States and and leading in various industries. So that could be something that they could get him behind. Uh, Carbon capture is another thing that it's potential, especially seeing um, businesses starting to back the idea of carbon capture more and more. Uh, I think that that's something that he could potentially be persuaded to support. Uh, but these are not things that are at his forefront right now when it comes to, you know, being a politician. These are not the areas that he's focusing his time on. I think that a lot of people raised their eyebrows when they saw that he was going to have this speech specifically on environmental leadership. But after listening to his speech, he still touched on a lot of the issues that we've been seeing him hailing for a long time now, which is jobs and the economy and basically how the environmental issues are still strong, but they are not taking away from the strong economy. And that is kind of the message that he cares about the most. We've heard about infrastructure, you know, never happened. Is there any infrastructure things, whether it's rail or for electric car charging or anything in infrastructure that could possibly uh, get through before the election in this administration? That's a, that's a good question. I'm definitely not before August recess. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, things tend to slow down and I and things are very slow in Congress right now. Uh, people are really focusing their sights on passing the National Defense Authorization Act. Then there's going to be a long the budget process, then the long recess. And 
you know, 2020 and campaign years just tend to be very slow in Congress because members don't really want to stick their necks out. A lot of them are on the campaign trail themselves. I mean, we have a bunch of Democrat candidates coming out of the Senate that are, you know, vying for the the Democratic hopeful spot. Uh, So while an infrastructure bill is always a possibility, I don't think anyone's expecting anything huge or very comprehensive to come through anytime soon. There's a couple of bipartisan bills in Congress, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act that has bipartisan support. Uh, Anything there that those really are looking at 2021 or beyond, do those have much traction? I think that there's traction in the sense that people are talking about it and there have been a couple different versions that have come out. Earlier in the spring, we had about 70 CEOs from various companies, including a few oil and gas companies, come in and say that they really would like to see a carbon tax, Hmm. which might shock some people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what are businesses doing asking for a tax on, you know, an industry that they are very much involved in? So these are, this is Exxon, this is BP, this is Shell. All of those CEOs came to Capitol Hill and specifically talked to Republicans and said, we want this regulation because at the end of the day, a regulation on the industry gives them stability. And a lot of these businesses want to know what's going to happen going forward because they know that there's pressure on the government um, and there's pressure on their businesses, too, to show that they are kind of addressing these issues. Yeah, it's odd. You think the the Republican Party being most receptive to business and there's broad support for carbon pricing among, uh, as you said, energy companies and the S&P 500 uh, big companies, Fortune 50 companies. And yet there doesn't seem to be their voices don't seem to be <laughs> be heard on that issue. Yeah, it's very fascinating to see that these companies are coming through and saying, hey, we know this is happening. And we're seeing companies like Google and companies like Walmart come out and say, we want to invest in renewable energy. We actually want to use more of it. And it's largely consumer driven. I mean, consumers are saying we want to invest and buy from companies that are using clean energy. Mm-hmm. And it's almost to the point where they are realizing that there might not be enough, you know, the market demand is higher than what's available out there. Uh There's a disconnect a bit with government in that sense, especially when it comes to the Republicans, because at the end of the day, it's very hard to sell a tax to their constituents. We've heard language changes used there. They've called it a carbon fee instead as a way Mm -hmm. to kind of sell it. And, you know, it. the idea is that, you know, you tax the polluters that are putting out the carbon pollution into the air, and then the revenues that the government gets back gets paid out to individuals, some of these bills say, you know, through dividends, so everyone wins. But it's, it's a convoluted concept. It hasn't been done before. There have been places like Canada that have tried similar concepts. It has seen limited success. Some states have tried to pass this. Uh, Washington state itself uh, tried to pass this through a ballot initiative earlier in the year. Um, And this is the same Washington that is, uh, you know, represented by uh, Governor Jay Inslee, who is running for for the presidency and his climate change is his main issue. And even he has really dropped talking about a carbon tax as a main initiative of his because he knows that it is still a very hard one to sell to the American people. Right. There was one of the uh, WikiLeaks leaked uh, emails from John Podesta when he was running the Clinton campaign that they they pulled and tested carbon tax. And there's just all the numbers were terrible, terrible. You know, you just running yep. on a tax is never a good thing for a, um, for a politician, though I would say on, on British Columbia, you know, they have a gradually increasing carbon tax. 
might, I'm not sure about the carbon reductions, but it certainly hasn't tanked the, the BC economy the way some opponents of a carbon tax say, oh, it'll, it'll crash the economy. There are places that have priced carbon pollutions and they haven't wrecked their economy in the process. So, um, yeah, there are there are test kitchens out there. And I think that, you know, it's more likely to see ideas like this passing as ballot initiatives in states through as test kitchens that can then kind of branch out to other states than something really holistically passing through Congress before 2020. And I think we're seeing that happen with a lot of areas, um, not just carbon taxing. Right. So what uh, you cover this quite closely in the Capitol for the Hill. Miranda, what are you looking for? What are you going to be covering in the fall as the election season heats up in the, in the climate space? What are you going to be watching? Well, uh, you know, there's there's always the question of whether there's going to be a climate debate. And so that is something that has been uh, debated hotly, um, <laughs> to use all of the climate-related puns that I can in one <laughs> sentence. Uh, but, you know, it's an, it's an issue that's rising to prominence, which is why I think we are seeing Republicans needing to talk about this, why Trump has felt the need to reference this in a speech. It has become one of the top voting issues for Democrats. Uh, polls have consistently shown that climate change is right up there with health care. It's right up there with the economy right now for, for Democratic voters. And some polls we've been seeing also show that Republicans themselves are realizing that this is an issue and this is something that they have started to care about even in the last year. And so... This is a topic that's going to continue to come up on the campaign trail. This is obviously something the Democrats are going to be talking about, uh, whether they get a freestanding debate about this or not. But it's something that Trump is is going to find himself asked about frequently as well, uh, whether he takes the bait and talks about climate change directly or continues to talk about kind of his energy promotion and what he's done for the economy in terms of, you know, making the U.S. a huge oil producer will remain to be seen. But everything can change at the, you know, stroke of a tweet. So we will see. I'm uh, old enough and been in this long enough to remember I went to Copenhagen in 2009 and Donald Trump, uh, I think members of his family signed a, a full page advertisement in The New York Times calling for a deal in Copenhagen. So he has been on the supportive side of climate change a long time ago, clearly not where he has now, but he has been there before. Uh, as we wrap up, Miranda, how do you think climate's going to affect you personally as a young reporter person living in Washington, D.C.? I think that it's going to affect every aspect of my life going forward. I think it'll affect everyone's life in some way. We're already seeing, you know, massive weather events that are, you know, happening earlier and with more intensity than they were before. I'm from the state of California, so my hometown of Santa Barbara, California, has seen three forest fires um, in the last five years. My family itself has been evacuated twice. A town next door to mine, you know, saw the effects of a massive mudslide after the forest fire because of loosened ground and a drought affected state. So, you know, I don't think weather is the only way we're going to see it. I think we're going to start seeing mass migrations having to do with climate. I think that, you know, we're going to start seeing businesses transition away from using fossil fuels because eventually it's going to, the market is kind of backing them too. So I think we're going to be seeing our world change. I think that we're going to be seeing an emphasis kind of placed in a different way, largely driven by consumer interests, some of that driven by fear from what we are seeing. Um, and I think that while some of it seems scary, I think that, you know, some of it can be really positive, too. Yeah, there's cool stuff and scary stuff happening. And that's what we like to cover. Well, Miranda Green, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me.
Miranda Green, energy and environment reporter for The Hill, on the Green New Deal, the Green Real Deal, and the prospects for climate action in Congress. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>